this is Anabaptist Perspectives. I'm here in Pittsburgh with Josh. Um, it's actually been a long time since I've seen you. Last time was overseas. Introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your formal intellectual training. Um, I believe you just finished your degree, actually. Yeah, I just, um, just this past month finished my master's in English from Duquesne University here in Pittsburgh. My formal post-secondary academic journey began at Faith Builders. Um, I finished the teacher apprenticing program there in 2010 and uh, taught for a few years and I wanted to finish my degree kind of for pragmatic reasons, but I also wanted to explore maybe some different fields. You mentioned uh, talking internationally or, or, oh, or interacting yeah. internationally. Mm -hmm. So that was one area that I kind of wanted to feel out. Um, I actually took a class at George Mason University really? in what? global studies, just okay. one class, summer class. But then it wasn't working to transfer um, because of Faith Builders, their accreditation status and all that. So I actually ended up that in 2013, I began at Regent University online, was able to transfer mm -hmm. most of my work at Faith Builders um, to Regent. Um, and I chose to do a degree in English primarily for you know, kind of pragmatic reasons, but mm -hmm. it was also an area of interest of mine. And um, I would say like with, like as I started the degree program, it was about that time that I began getting a vision for what uh, academics as an Anabaptist could look like. Most of this was actually spurred by a podcast recommendation from a friend of mine, um, the Christian Humanist Podcast. I began listening to that and it's a podcast where three Christian college professors, they just sit together and they talk about whatever text or ideas that they um, wanna talk about on a kind of week to week basis during the semester. And so this really fired my imagination for what faithful mm -hmm. scholarship as a Christian, as an Anabaptist could look like. It was at this point I began thinking about possibly doing, pursuing graduate education and pursuing like a traditional professor track. But then I got kind of sidetracked and ended up in, in, uh, in Israel working in Jerusalem for a humanitarian NGO for three years. And as actually at that, at that point that I finished my, my undergraduate work in 2016, but I decided to then pursue academics more formally and so I applied to Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, was accepted on a teaching fellowship, two-year teaching fellowship. Yeah, just finished that, and uh, wow. it was a great experience, stretching and wonderful in, in every way. Yeah. So you said it was a teaching program as well. So like, were you teaching in addition to doing your studies, I guess? Right. Yeah. So um, the way a fellowship works is that it's, it provides uh, tuition remuneration mm -hmm. as well as um, uh, a small stipend for teaching services. So I was teaching one class per semester in the freshman writing program, mm, okay. um, as well as in the first year I was working in the, in the university writing center as a consultant, and then the second year I was working as a, as a research fellow, uh, research oh, assistant, so working fun. with professors on their projects. So yeah, I got experience um, teaching uh, in the classroom. Uh -huh. um, and now, I mean, where I'm now is, um, you know, I, I'm not pursuing the PhD for a number of reasons. It's really hard right now in the with the state of the current, you know, academic institution, humanities mm -hmm. especially, it's really, really, really hard, um, as we were discussing, to answer to, to find those traditional tracks. Yeah. Those are becoming increasingly rare. Um, there's a lot of talk about in, in the academy about a crisis of legitimacy within the humanities. Like, what are we here for? What wow. are we supposed to be doing? So there's a lot of internal as well as external pressures. Um, if you want to pursue that traditional track, I mean, you really have to be willing to move anywhere in the country, and we're just not not willing to do that with <laughs> you know three kids, and yeah. and plus the you know, there's there's an emotional and a financial toll that it takes that um, d it doesn't feel like really healthy uh, right now, mm -hmm. um, but you know yeah. it was yeah. it was a good experience and mm -hmm. just trying to figure out where to go where to take it from here. What what is the what is the value 
mm-hmm. in this. Uh, I guess to, to kind of put it bluntly, you know, yeah. like you have a you have a master's degree right. in in English literature. How how does this empower our people? How will this benefit us? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, one thing for us humanities folks, um, it's always a bit hard to answer because. Uh, we feel like, well, if it's not obvious, you just won't get it, right? <laughs> if you have to ask, you know. But no, it, it's, it's actually a very good question. Let's just zoom back a little bit and think about humanities, like where it comes mm-hmm. from originally. You know, humanities was initially, in the kind of classical education, was just a designation to dis- distinguish it from like divinity, like the study of theology or study of God. Uh, so, uh-huh. so, I mean, when we're talking about humanities, we're talking about human, kind of human-based knowledge, right? Mm-hmm. So philosophy, literature, linguistics, mm-hmm. history, and then to some degree also like the soft sciences, right? Like anthropology, um, psychology, mm-hmm. sociology, and those sorts of things. I can talk about it, how, like, you know, what it means to me, um, and I guess you can extrapolate out from that, you know, what it means for Anabaptists. Sure. sure. So for me, it's really connected uh, to kind of the fundamental, I guess, doctrine that I would root it in would be, would be the doctrine of Imago Dei, of humans being created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And um, Dorothy Sayers has this really interesting point that she makes in The Mind of the Maker, um, where she says, well, what are we what are we supposed to make of that like the only context the only clue that we have as to what that means in its context in genesis is that god god is crea- creating right mm-hmm. and so therefore humans you know create and this is particularly getting into the humanities as you know the arts right humans uh, yeah. humans creating things doing doing things with stuff making things making culture mm-hmm. um so, so I that's kind of the that's kind of the background um, for me. Uh, uh, kind of a central kind of guiding verse, if you want to call it a proof text, you can call it a proof text. But it's, it's from Psalm one eleven, uh, where it talks about great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And in the context, it's mm-hmm. talking about you know the works, the historical works of God that God did for the children of Israel. But for me, I, I see humans as kind of the, the kind of the traditional medieval way of you know the crown of creation, right? And, and, and with the doctrine of Imago Dei enjoying a kind of proximity, a close proximity to God. And so therefore, the stuff of human culture worth paying attention to, worth thinking about, uh, wrestling with. Really, the question kind of at the core of all this is what does it mean, what does it mean to be human? What, what is the human experience and like how have people uh, across cultures and across time wrestled with that, thought about that? So I, I think that's kind of the, it's not really specifically Anabaptist, anything Anabaptist about sure. that, right? But, but that's kind of you know, where I come at it um, mm-hmm. from. So, you know, I mentioned earlier the Christian Humanist podcast. You know, humanist is obviously something that's going <laughs> to not really resonate very well, you know, especially within, um, it's kind of the boogeyman, right, uh, of, of contemporary discourse. But the original uh, humanists were actually, you know, Christian humanists, right? Erasmus, kind okay. of the, the prince of, you know, Renaissance humanism. Um, he de- I mean, he developed, he was responsible for developing you know, the Greek New Testament that eventually down the road, you know, the King James Bible was, you know, you know based upon. Mm-hmm. It's actually within the university setting, it's, it's interesting, like, to identify yourself as a humanist is actually a very conservative kind of designation because um, <laughs> okay. right now um, kind of a big a big framework theoretical framework within the university is something called posthumanism and it has you know has a lot of different manifestations but it generally is kind of the idea that we have made a mess of things as humans right whether you're talking about environmental degradation economic exploitation um, racism all of these different things like, like we have really kind of made a mess of things and to hold us up as somehow exceptional um, is really kind of a you know a bad 
a bad look, right? Like we're not that exceptional, right? So, so it's like it's really an attempt, like a theoretical attempt, to decenter the human as kind of the arbiter of truth and knowledge and all of that. You know, of course, I don't deny their the criticisms, right? I mean, we have made a mess of it um, in, in many in many ways, but I really feel like Christians and maybe especially Anabaptists <laughs> kind of have a we're at a position where we can maybe do better with the humanities as they kind of have this mm. kind of struggle, this crisis of identity, because we can hold both kind of the exceptionality, exceptionalism of humans, as well as, you know, their depravity, right? We can, we can do great things. We can also really make uh. a mess of things. Um, so it feels like there's a mm -hmm. perspective there that I think you might be missing that we might be able to mm -hmm. offer to bring, um, to bring to the, to the conversation. Well, and it's, and it's a field like the humanities is not, something Anabaptists are really involved in right now. Right. Is that a fair assessment, basically? Right. No, that's a very fair, very fair assessment. Like, I understand why to some degree, but I also, I also don't understand why, because it's, it's really interesting to me to, um, you know, just observing my people, right? Like, when we get our, we're very good at, like, practical things, you know, doing things with our hands, and, like, and when we do something, we do it right. But it seems like, for whatever reason, on some of these issues, we're we're okay, especially like education and all of that. We're we're okay, kind of with mediocrity, maybe. And it's mm. it's changing a little bit. You know, it's, it's changing for the better. And that's actually one of the things that I see, you know, especially Anabaptists, uh, particularly poised to do well with the humanities. Mm. I, I would hope, anyway. It's kind of my vision. Sure. Is we're kind of coming to it with a kind of a fresh perspective, and maybe we're able to do it in a in a little bit of a different context or a different way that we don't replicate you know, kind of the bigger. Um, problems that are at play in the kind of the larger institutional settings. Yeah. So, so like we would have something to offer. Yeah, yeah, potentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't, I, I don't, uh, I, I don't have a whole lot to say even like for what it does for us. Except maybe we'll get to it in the cross cultural conversation. But I think, I think there's things that we can offer. If I can get back to the the question of humanism, one of the things that has really fired my uh, imagination with this is is the idea of what's what. Norman Clausen and Jen Zimmerman in this book, The Passionate Intellect, uh, uh, um, what uh, they call incarnational humanism, this idea that, well, I'll just read it, um, if I may. Their thesis of, the, of this book is that only the incarnation enables a recovery of humanism as the heart of university education because the incarnation allows us to retain the best elements of the greater humanist tradition and of its postmodern critics without repeating their shortcomings. Human dignity, the dignity of nature, and the interpretive nature of truth become possible without fragmentation or totalization. And when they're talking there about human dignity, um, the dignity of creation, but also interpret like truth as interpretation, mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I think we do well to recognize is that, you know, another scary kind of boogeyman, if you will, is is you know, is postmodernism, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you know, obviously has its problems, especially if you're coming at it from a from a Christian um, point of view. But um, it also levels some really good critiques against like enlightenment rationalism, this idea that we can have knowledge as somehow this kind of disembodied rational yeah. um, knowledge. And when the reality is, is, that, is that knowledge and even reason is always mediated through texts. It's always mediated through, hmm. through bodies, through people, through traditions. Um, there is an affective element, an aesthetic element to knowledge that um, calls into question this ability to access truth from this kind of completely cerebral, 
detached perspective. And mm-hmm. I don't I don't see that as a threat. I mean, it potentially, like the kind of the, the direction postmodernism takes that is is to say, well, then we can't know anything for sure. There, you know, mm-hmm. there is nothing that we can know for certain. And so then, what you're left with is to deconstruct, you know, everything. And you know, it's just about a matter of being ironic and you know, playing with language and make, to make it do what you want to do. The alternative to that, I think, is worship and mystery and humility. And I think here again is something that maybe we could bring to the conversation to recognize that we are limited in our understanding of of knowledge uh, or our understanding of truth. And that's something I've been thinking about lately is is actually the difference between like understanding versus like perceiving. Understanding Ooh. is like etymologically. Uh, I haven't worked this all out, so I'm kind of working it out, you know, as we talk. But like sure, sure. etymologically, it's, it's you know, it's it's to stand under or the German day to stand in front of versus perceiving or apprehending as a kind of grasping or a kind of taking a hold of. And so when you reach the point of understanding is when you, it's almost like a posture of, of submission of standing in front of or standing in, in kind of unknowing or mystery in some way. Yeah. And um, it has an element of worship to it, I think, that, mm-hmm. that I think is missed in like the very, in a more, I guess, a cerebral mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. approach or limiting yourself to that. So one of the things when we were emailing before this, you had mentioned how academic pursuits, the humanities, there's an intersection between that and cross-cultural engagement. Could you talk about that personally for yourself? How has your academic involvement um, enabled you in the cross-cultural element? One of the things that I've noticed, especially with Anabaptists, and this is getting more specifically to Anabaptism, is when we, when we talk about like doing work internationally or working cross-culturally, we do very well, I think, at talking about how to how to speak in a the language of a particular culture that we're trying to communicate with, right? Um, and what this often ends up doing is appreciate is fostering an appreciation then for that culture's particular idioms, um, that culture's way of thinking, the stories, um, the art that has shaped that culture. Mm-hmm. But I don't see that so much that kind of attempt being made so much with Western culture, especially Western popular culture. And when I'm talking culture, I'm talking like literature, art, music, film, Mm -hmm. stories, all that kind of wrapped up into one. I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know why this is. I haven't really developed a a strong enough thesis. Maybe it's because we see ourselves so much as already a part of that culture that we need to be like countercultural. I think there's a limitation there when we don't try to at least understand, you know, the people around us. Um, we all we are countercultural in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are two cultures at work, even in America. Even though we understand like the idioms better, we get it. As as I see it, like so far, Anabaptists have taken kind of two steps to culture, uh, two approaches. Um, one is what I've been talking about, like the counterculture, kind of against culture. Mm-hmm. It's either kind of irrelevant or marginally useful or mm. dangerous, actually, right? And, you know, I, you know, I understand some of the concerns coming out, coming out of that. The, the, the other approach is kind of complete acculturation, just uncritical consumption. So we either watch movies or we don't watch movies, <laughs> you know, but we don't, yeah. or we either, you know, Read Harry Potter. We don't watch, or don't read <laughs> Harry Potter. Um, but we we don't. I don't see us like thinking very 
deeply or coherently like as a culture about about how we engage and so what i would hope to kind of promote for my people is more deliberate like participation mm -hmm. kind of or critical engagement or at least make like an attempt to understand because first of all there's a lot of you know if i may say it, there, there is a lot of truth a lot of goodness a lot of beauty that's created by people who are not like us right mm -hmm. i think we we see that with we can see that with like international cultures i think we're less apt to see it with 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 our own culture mm -hmm. so i think that's where i'm mm -hmm. sort of coming from there and then that that opening up a a bridge for communication for understanding mm -hmm. you know i mentioned i taught uh first year uh, first year writing and it's amazing to me the level at which my students um, so what they're you know late teens early 20s you know mm -hmm. freshmen coming out of high school you know they've been they've been deeply deeply shaped by you know by Harry Potter <laughs> by <laughs> Avengers you know and like like frankly there's like a cultural gap there you know as somebody who grew up uh -huh. in a in a more conservative environment you know there like there's there's this kind of a gap there that I completely missed. Well, you might, you could say maybe that, maybe it was good that I missed that. Maybe I can show them, you know, maybe it's not worth, you know, getting, or mm -hmm. uh, having that experience. But, but I don't know about that because um, I think we, we too easily just kind of reject mm -hmm. um, instead of trying to at least understand. Like untangle it. Yeah, if for nothing yeah. else, if, for not, if only for pragmatic reasons, yeah. like to, yeah. like to understand. <laughs> I, I think, you know, there's, there's often more there than what we give it credit for being, but mm -hmm. um, I reala also realize that might not be, you know, widely shared <laughs> idea, but um, it would be something I would at least hope. Um, and, and especially for our people, I think it's something we have to reckon with. I mean, not to be, I don't, I don't like a, kind of the doomsday approach that, oh, we're just so connected, we're becoming acculturated. But if we're going to have like, you know, mobile technology, access to the internet, whereas in the past, like kind of our countercultural, um, more conservative groups haven't had the uh, access uh, to, you know, uh -huh. mass media, we're, that gap is, is narrowing. And mm -hmm. I, would, I would advocate for, I guess, more just more critical engagement with it instead mm -hmm. of either kind of the hand wringing that, oh my goodness, what's happening? Or, or, or kind of sticking our head in the sand and pretending, you know, yeah. that we're not being shaped by this because we are. Like, yeah. I mean, we really, really are like being shaped by this and you know, especially young people, but you know, yeah. all the rest of us. Yeah, and endeavoring to understand well, maybe. Right, and I mean, you're, you're going to be pulled in a direction regardless. Like, you know, you're the, mm -hmm. you, you choose the media that you consume, you're gonna be pulled especially in the polarized world America that we are in right now you're going to be pulled in one direction or the other and I would I would like to think that we could you know have a kind of a third way in may, of maybe critically engaging mm -hmm. um, offering a different perspective being thoughtful about it consuming in that way I don't even like the word consuming but um, yeah, participating maybe, yeah maybe like participating engaging analyzing thinking right. through right. right yeah yeah right. yeah and I don't have a lot of easy answers like I'm not just saying I'm not saying or just immerse yourself in pop culture, right? All of that needs to be worked through at a, you know, I think at a local community level in conversation with, with community and mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit, right? But um, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we, when we, when we cut ourselves off that dramatically from, from mm -hmm. the culture around us. So going off of that, pivoting a little bit, but what is one piece of literature or something in your studies um, that you feel has impacted you the most? Mm -hmm. Um, that you would care to share. Right. Um, so I am going to go the biblical route. Um, okay. yeah. Give two examples um, from from the Bible that really have kind of shaped 
my thinking about culture and engaging culture, um, studying it, appreciating it, uh, learning from it, but also contributing to it. Um, the first is uh, Daniel and his friends in Babylon. Oh, yeah. Um, they are given you know, their rations and they're given a program of study. You need to learn the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And they come out on the other end of that very, very well studied. You know, three years hmm. having studied the language and literature of the Chaldeans and they're known for their wisdom and their ability to interpret dreams. And obviously it says, you know, this is something God gave them, sure. but they also put sure. it in the work. And this is, and this is pagan true. literature that they're studying. Pagan, if you want to call it like pagan wisdom. But yeah. they're, they're being faithful to the God of Israel. You know, they're keeping kosher, right? They're in a foreign land, but they're, they're learning and able to use the literature of that, of that mm -hmm. culture in, in mm -hmm. meaningful ways. And again, what does this mean um, for us? That's, some, that's, that's, yeah, that's wow. where yeah. the interpretation needs to happen. The, the conversation needs to happen. But I think that's, that's something that's kind of just, uh, that biblical story has, has been powerful for me. Mm. But also, and maybe, maybe more, more impacting or more central is, is Paul, Paul's sermon mm. on Mars Hill, where he goes, where he's, he's there in Athens and he's talking to them, reasoning with the men of Athens, right? Mm -hmm. And in the course of his, his, his sermon, he, he quotes two separate uh, Greek poets, pagan poets, if I can read it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, please. So yeah. I, have it, I have it right here. So Paul here, he's, he's talking um, about, you know, where God is mm -hmm. in, in, in the world, in the cosmos. And then in verse 27, um, he says, yet he is not actually... Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for, quote, in him we live and move and have our being. And that quote there is from, from, a, from a Greek poet. And then he continues, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone and so forth and so on. Oh, so yeah, he's, yeah. He's, it's like he's, he's weaving these poets, in a sense, like taking them, taking the wisdom that's there using it to speak to them in their own idiom, in their own way. Yeah. And it's not just, I don't think it's just, again, it's not just a pragmatic kind of, mm -hmm. you know, sales pitch, right? You know, you need to grease the wheels here. Like, he's quoting it almost as if it is actually, like, divine wisdom. In him we live and move and have our being. And so, you know, I see that as another example of, you know, a faithful believer. I mean, mm -hmm. like, the kind of founder of Christianity in some yeah. ways, like institutional Christianity using the wisdom that's there and you know ultimately i think it comes back to the it's kind of cliche but you know all truth is god's truth right yeah. and so it's yeah. true I, I mean augustine you know talks about that as mm -hmm. as well as as others um so those have been kind of the, mm -hmm. the formative ones for me thinking about specifically like cross-cultural uses of the mm -hmm. humanities as well mm -hmm. as benefiting personally from them so we're gonna flip that around then mm -hmm. and and because one of the concerns people have is okay so we've seen that the upside the cross-cultural right. engagement these scriptures you're right. using but then they say well what about these secular ideologies or maybe un ideologies coming through in literature art how, whatever it is right that we don't agree with how do we handle that um especially you know especially in a in a academic setting it's a very good question um first i will say that by almost by definition the humanities are like secular in the sense that <laughs> they are like about humans and not about the divine, so like almost by definition, there, there's a kind of secularism there. But I think what you're talking about is like ideological secularism, like this idea that we can't bring in any kind of, or, or, or that like this is the way the world is, right? And, and this kind of ideological approach. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, there is a de facto kind of secularism you know, within the university that I think you need to be aware of going into. And, and sure. I, but I, what I would recommend, I think sometimes it gets overplayed and caricatured uh, a bit in, mm-hmm. in you know, mass media. And um, what I would say to somebody who's considering you know, studying this at the university level is first of all, root yourself in a faithful community. Um, ideally somebody who, uh, or a community who has, in, that includes both you know, academically inclined as well as non-academically inclined sure. people. You don't want to be lonely, but you also need people to kind of you know keep you rooted. Yeah. So that's that, yeah. that's one just yeah. kind of practical. I mean, some of this what I'm going to give you is just kind of practical, you know, pieces of advice. Along with that, um, also like surround yourself with with other people within the field, like both from the past and the present. Like one yeah. other thing about the humanities that you realize, especially like English literature, you go into it, and like most of these people, like especially the older stuff, like most of these people are working within the parameters of a of a functionally Christian. Uh, perspective worldview. Uh-huh. So, like all of my, like most of my work actually that I did at Duquesne was, or at least the substantial stuff was, mm. was in was with like George Herbert, who was a you know seventeenth mm. century devotional poet, and mm. you know theology of Lancelot Andrews, who was a, a pastor during that time. So yeah, um, surround yourself with people by, like I was saying, both from the past as well as the present, who have demonstrated mm. like faithfulness in scholarship as well as in like in their. Christian faith in their in their in their devotional life, you know, mentioning like Herbert, George Herbert, John Donne, you know, some of those um, 17th century poets that I really found myself gaining an appreciation for. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, you have like uh, Lewis, C.S. Lewis, uh, G.K. Chesterton, Tolkien, Sayers, mm-hmm. kind of that group of of British intellectuals that um, I think our people are usually fairly familiar with. But also in the present, um, just some names that I would recommend to pay attention to. Roger Lundeen, he was a uh, professor of English at Wheaton, Wheaton College, wrote some really amazing books that have been influential for me, um, beginning with the word, culture of interpretation, where he really gets into these, you know, these, he really wrestles with like modernism and postmodernism, questions of interpretation, uh, yeah. um, but just from a very deep and rich um, you know, Christian framework. Roger Lundeen is unfortunately no longer living. He he passed away from a heart attack in 2015. Okay. Um, but yeah, his books are still still out. Karen Swallow Pryor, um, former professor of English at Liberty University, but she's one to pay attention to. Um, and then also I mentioned the Christian Humanist Podcast, um, which has been um, probably excessively influential in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of a whole network of shows now. Sure, but, but like, sure. it was always helpful for me hmm. as I was pursuing having these these questions pursuing these yeah. this these um, degrees to have kind of a you know cadre of people from like the past as well as the present mm-hmm. even if you're not like with them you know in flesh to kind of right yeah. you know to kind of help you think you know mm-hmm. in, in ways it's like i think i really think thinking happens in community knowledge happens in community like like yeah. um, and and again that's something i think anabaptists bring to the table is this this understanding that like we don't like access truth and knowledge very well by ourselves off, you know, with only our brain. And, you know, you, you pretty much, you're pretty soon end up in some pretty deep rabbit holes about <laughs> your questions of like, what can I trust and what do I know and how do I know, right? But if, you know, postmodernism has done any good, it has highlighted the, the communal um, mm. nature, uh, embodied nature of truth. And maybe just like referring to these other people that have wrestled through some of these mm-hmm. things before. Right, right. Yeah, right. that's, yeah. Right. That's Th- these point. questions aren't new. Um, you know, <laughs> also, it, yeah. that's it's something you kind of, you know, realize pretty soon is, is that, you know, mm-hmm. we think, you know, 
postmodernism and you know, post-structuralism, post-humanism, all this stuff is is like really new and avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. and you read the Greek, <laughs> Greek philosophers, and most of this stuff is just recycled in like a different context. Um, so yeah, root yourself in a, in, in a community. Be honest with yourself about what you want. Mm-hmm. Remember, like one of the things I found out that's so amazing is is that. What is believable depends so much on context, and maybe that's just me. Maybe somebody who's like more rational than I am, you know, it might not struggle with that. But like something can be completely believable and understandable, you know, in a university setting where you know, church on a Sunday morning, you know, all of a sudden it's like, really? I was like, yeah, I was, I was entertaining that that idea is yeah, like somehow yeah. true. So I like again, like recognize those affective dimensions of knowledge and truth it's not that that is that is there and that is important and mm-hmm. and even even the most i would i would argue that even the most rationally inclined people you know ultimately there's some there's some kind of image there there's mm-hmm. some kind of desire there that drives the way you think about knowledge and truth mm-hmm. or or who you want to be what you want to be perceived as. And so I, I agree that facts don't care for your feelings, but at the same time, I don't think you can ever disentangle like <laughs> facts from feelings and from that, from the affective dimension. So yeah. yeah, and also ask like, what type of person do I want to become? And that's one of the things mm-hmm. that for me has been helpful. And, you know, as much as I struggle with, you know, reconciling everything and, and I, don't, I don't have everything, everything reconciled with my Anabaptist, you know, past and culture and commitments and there are things that within the tradition that, you know, um, I struggle with mm-hmm. and that I, I think, you know, my academic pursuits can speak to, mm-hmm. but, you know, also recognize that I, I look around and like, who do I want to become? Well, you know, yeah. um, there, are, there are examples there that, that are worth emulating. Be willing to live with tension, um, be humble, don't go into it thinking that you have to immediately destroy every argument that somehow you know feels wrong. Um, be willing to live with that tension. One of the things that I found is is that you know quite, uh, coming in good faith, you're usually more than welcome. You know, in in yeah. in in those yeah. in in a more secularized um, university setting. I think for the most part, speaking from my own experience and also just from other people in the field. You know, we have these kind of caricatures, right, of, you know, God's not dead, you know, movie. I don't know if you're yeah, familiar with it, sure, but like, you know, sure, the, yeah. the professor who's just out to destroy the student and the student who like owns his professor, you know, after studying, you know, some online apologetics courses. And like, yeah. you know, you might run into a professor here or there, um, but by and large, that that is just, um, I would just encourage you to like, encourage people to just avoid that kind of culture wars mentality. I think it's just overall kind of destructive. And um, it really, you know, I have learned um, just an example from um, one of my classes. I took a class on, you know, faith in the Renaissance. It was called Faith in the Renaissance. And it's really what started me on this line with Renaissance poetry and, and all of that. And, um, you know, the professor, like, openly makes no professions of belief. I mean, has a background in Catholicism, but, you know, is, is largely secular. But she reads Calvin, John Calvin, and takes Calvinism seriously. Um, she mm-hmm. reads L- Luther and takes Luther, like Luther, seriously, yeah. and like, it, it, and it's an attempt to under as, to understand, as I see it, like that this is important to understand the topic that I'm studying, the topic that I'm interested in. If you want to understand uh-huh. Uh-huh. the 17th century poetry, you have to understand these theological tensions there. Like I actually learned from that. Like I think that's a virtue, mm-hmm. an academic virtue, um, to be able to to read and understand people who you don't agree with necessarily. I mean, I tell my, my, my writing students that, that you should be able to repeat the arguments of your opponents 
better than you know as good a, or better um, than yeah. they do. Yeah, and you know take them in good faith and then engage in that kind of dialogue. So, mm-hmm. I, I think those would be some of the big points that I would yeah. recommend. Is there anything else you would like to add before we wrap up? I mentioned tension. Um, mm-hmm. So. One of the things that, if I could just read a few verses um, sure. here at the end, this is something that I kind of kept in front of me as I was going into academia, um, something I want to keep in front of me. There, there are two scriptures. Uh, the first is Proverbs 4, uh, verses 7 to 9. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. like... There's this, mm-hmm. there's this scripture about like get wisdom, get insight, get knowledge, yeah. like pursue it all the way. There's also a verse in the scriptures from Ecclesiastes 1 verse 18, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So, you know, a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. however you want to take those, mm-hmm. um, I like to think of scripture as having a plurality of voices and like if you want to keep just kind of a final, I guess, advice for whatever it's worth, you know, keep those two kind of visions of knowledge, of academics, of wisdom, of understanding, kind of intention. Like, on the one hand, it's, it's worth giving yourself to completely. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, it's not everything, right? <laughs> and, then, and depending on how it's pursued, it can just lead to a whole lot of mm-hmm. pain, and, mm-hmm. pain and sorrow. And, um, I can testify to both of those. <laughs> <laughs> Balance in all things, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Attention in all or things. Or tension. Tension, yeah, yeah. It's, it, you know, yeah. it's, it's that inability yeah. to rest, right? Thanks so much for sharing. Thanks I for learned a lot. I think a lot of people will learn from this as well. So Thank you. Yes. For more information about Anabaptist Perspectives, to read our blog, to donate, and to see videos of the conversations you hear on this podcast, visit anabaptistperspectives.org. We'd love to hear from our audience, so leave your feedback in the comments for this podcast or send us a message through our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for listening to Anabaptist Perspectives. Your listening and sharing this with friends helps more people find our episodes. A special thanks to all of you who support Anabaptist Perspectives financially. We are here because of you. If you haven't had the chance to give yet this year, would you consider making a year-end donation? You can donate on our website or by check. Thank you so much for listening and supporting Anabaptist Perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We invite you to join our monthly partner program. Monthly partners are key to the financial sustainability of Anabaptist Perspectives. Partners also gain access to bonus content, including our exclusive podcast where we respond to audience questions and comments. Sign up at anabaptistperspectives.org.